What we know is that there are certain types of language and rhetoric that have proven themselves over history to mobilize people towards violence. And that just requires of us a different level of responsibility. Hello, and welcome to The Interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your host and the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. This week, I'm speaking with Wesley Lowry, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author who is making his return to The Interview. He's back to talk about his new book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. It's a deeply reported book examining how racial progress, like the election of the first black president, Barack Obama, in 2008, is always met with a backlash, which can manifest in extreme violence. He traces that backlash throughout American history, how it exploded during the Obama administration, and eventually culminated in the election of former President Donald Trump. Wesley, welcome back to the interview. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Now, this is a fascinating, angering, but above all, deeply reported book. To start, why don't you tell us why you set out to write this book and if you could define the white lash that you describe in it? So I remember, you know, I finished my first book, uh, which was called They Can't Kill Us All, and it published in November 2016 which was a very uh, slow news time. Nothing was happening. Uh, <laughs> and, so I, and so when you publish a book, people always ask you, well, what's next? What are you working on? And I had at the time been covering the rise of Black Lives Matter uh, and the protest movement. And so I was interested in figuring out what, what came next and what would be the next season in that story. And what we saw was these incidents and this of a backlash of of violence right whether it was nazis rallying at the inauguration and doing hitler salutes or a muslim woman attacked on the train in portland whether it was the tree of life shooting or the el paso shooting right that this became an era where it became very clear that if my job or my beat was to cover race and justice and violence, that a significant component of it would be white racial violence towards people of color, right? Now, let's be clear. That's not to say that like every white person out there is committing acts of violence. It's not to, like we're talking about what is a small subsection of people, right? But in our democracy, in our society, a small set of people can make a very big difference. And in terms of violence, it only takes one person to steal any number of people's lives. And so what I started looking at was first started looking at this idea of this violence that was occurring during the Trump administration. But then to contextualize that, you can't really understand the Trump administration without understanding the Obama administration, the politics and the moment that brings us to that, right? That Trump is this rise of a pretty explicitly nativist movement. I don't mean this to call him names, right? I mean it like he would acknowledge and say, right? That that the the chief policy and political platform is to keep different types of people out of the country by constructing a wall and keeping the Muslims out and changing this and doing that. We see Ron DeSantis, who's running as a Trump light type character who, you know, yesterday declared he would end birthright citizenship, a thing he couldn't do as president, right? But it speaks to what their what the messaging is, right? And so as we think about this and as we look at this, I, I wanted to look at how does the rise of Trump 
how do we understand that and can we understand that better as a response and as a backlash to Barack Obama? And how does that then fit in to American history, where at each juncture where there has been some type of Black advancement, we have seen a violent pushback and, and backlash. And so that is what I think about when I think about American white lash, that like if the United States of America was founded as an explicitly white supremacist country, and again, I don't mean that colloquially. I don't mean like affirmative, you know, like I'm talking about like this was a country that was founded where white people were, were human and citizens and other people were not, right? That mm. each step towards undoing that is matched and is and is greeted with a backlash from those who benefited from the system the way it was, knowingly or not. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people would look at the Trump era as, you know, this unprecedented example of a, a demagogue rising to power when what you lay out really clearly in this book in a really compelling way is that that was really the culmination. It was an explosion of something that was happening for, for years before. And you examined several cases of uh, violence throughout the country after the election of Obama, which I think for many Americans felt like a really hopeful time. And one town you examine in terms of how the issue of the white backlash to immigration really prospered is Patchogue, which I found personally very interesting because I spent part of my time in, in my childhood in a town nearby and immigration was always a big topic of conversation when I was growing up. You write about the killing of an Ecuadorian immigrant by a gang of high school kids who were sort of roving around attacking immigrants. Tell us about that horrific crime and how it plays into the reporting that you did here. Of course. So this is the the death of Marcelo Lucero. And his brother, Josello, is the first person I interviewed for this book now back. That was been 2018 or 2019. And Marcelo Lucero is an Ecuadorian immigrant. Um, he's moved to Patchog, which is out in Long Island, um, is one of the areas that is relatively early in terms of seeing demographic change because you have a lot of immigrant and migrant workers who come to work in the city or to work out in Long Island as day laborers or whatnot um, and who live in these areas. And so it was a time in the early and mid-2000s where immigration truly was one of the leading issues in this area that folks were concerned that their property values were going to go down, that the schools were going to become worse, right? We were in the midst of economic calamity with the downturn. And so people are saying, well, what are all these workers doing? And so it was a time that really helps us predict the politics that were to come uh, and where we were seeing it already. And, and here, uh, this was a case where we had a, um, this was a case where we had a county executive, Steve Levy, who is a very Trumpian figure. This is a Democrat uh, who made immigration his singular issue in a lot of ways. And, and that the politics in that place became very vitriolic towards immigrants, that if there was a problem, they were the ones who were blamed. And what I think is important for us, right? I think sometimes we get caught in this political conversation of, well, okay, so the politicians are saying X, Y, and Z about immigrants, and now an immigrant's been murdered, and so, but can we draw a direct, like, we, we seek this type of, like, very legalistic proof, right? That, like, someone had to be watching Tucker Carlson turn the show off and then walk out and, like, shoot up a synagogue. It, but what we have to understand is that a lot of this is about environment, right? That when we dehumanize people, right, we create an environment in which those people are no longer seen as people and therefore can be can be treated however. Uh, Gordon Alpert, the 
a psycho- social psychologist, I, I quote him, he talks about the progress of prejudice, how something goes from being felt interpersonally to how it, as it's encouraged in the public square, how it now is, okay, so now it's okay for me to behave differently. Let me move away from where those other people live. Okay, well, now let me actively discriminate against them. Okay, well, now let me be violent towards them, right? And, and he charts how that plays out. And, and the key role that our public rhetoric and political rhetoric play in those permission structures, right? That prejudice is actually something that's very human and natural in a lot of ways, right? That we we like people who kind of look like us or, or who make us feel good and like we're skeptical of people who are different, right? We all have that. When we walk down the street, we think, oh, do I think that person's attractive or do I think that like we have a prejudice, right? That's Right. But what we see is that there are several steps a prejudice has to take to the point where we're committing an act of violence. And what happens when, for political purposes, we have politicians, political figures, political parties who are willing to routinely dehumanize people is that those prejudices, now people are more willing to act on them in these violent ways. And so what we saw in the case of Marcelo Lucero was an Ecuadorian immigrant who was minding his own business walking down the street one night. And a gang of high schoolers who had been out, quote unquote, beaner hopping that night, beating up Hispanic immigrants because that was a thing they did because in the society and the world in which they lived, this group of people was so demagogued and so scapegoated that this is something you would do. It it was acceptable. And it results in the murder of of a man who had done nothing but mind his own business. And I think that that, I think that's really important, Right. Look, we can't explain away evil, we can't explain away interpersonal prejudice, but what we can do in our society is we can make sure those of us who are charged with facilitating the public dialogue and the public square, we can make sure that we're not actively pouring gasoline, we're not allowing people to be dehumanized because we know that language can lead to violence. And one of the best pieces of writing that you quote in your book is uh, you speak about a column that was written by Mike Royko, a columnist. uh, He he was writing at the time at the Chicago Daily News. And in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King, he writes this piece that that goes to what you're saying about how, to what extent can we directly connect the rhetoric of, say, demagogues and, and the millions of people that listen to them to these violent Killings, like tell us about the argument that he made and why that that spoke to you in this book. Well, what, what he what he lays out and what he writes about is this idea that we all put the gun in the hand of the assassin, right? That we are all collectively as a society whispering that encouragement in the ear of the person who ultimately uh, commits the act of violence, right? And I think that and so when we see these acts of violence, how do we think about who has been whispering in their ear? When Robert Bowers walks into the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, guns down innocent people and does so explicitly, he says, because he's afraid that this synagogue and that Jewish Americans are helping advance a great replacement of the white race by, it, by bringing in refugees and immigrants. Well, who has been whispering those ideas in his ear? And it hasn't even been a whisper, right? At the time, we had a Fox News host who openly talked about these ideas all the time. We had a president who was openly talking, it's an invasion, let's follow the caravan and this and that, right? And so what we know is that it we let ourselves off too easy 
when we say that all that matters is as long as you don't explicitly call for violence, it's okay. History tells us that if you demonize a group of people, people will be violent towards them and hate them and their experience will be worse. But as long as you don't actually say go be violent, what are we supposed to do? And it's fair and it's fair. Like, I think that we have to aspire to be better and greater than that as a country. And if we are going to be a multicultural society, if we are going to be a multiracial democracy, we have to be better than that, right? We have to ensure the freedom of different types of people. And freedom means being able to walk down the street without being killed for who you are. And it's interesting. I mean, that debate is still playing out today where we have a debate about whether or not when a Trump supporter sent pipe bombs to CNN's headquarters or when a bunch of Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol and beat up Capitol Police, like whether or not Trump's rhetoric is to blame for that. And there was all this parsing of his words. You know, he did tell the crowd to be peaceful and all this stuff. And I think I was a little bit heartened to see in that direct aftermath of January 6th, at least, that Republicans were standing up and saying he was directly to blame for this. Like, there's no which way about it. He said that the election was stolen and people went to, to the Capitol that day and, and rioted uh, as a direct result of that. But it's, it's incredible that you're still seeing those debates play out today. Like, what do you make of those debates? Of course. And I, and I think, and look, I think a lot of it is, is the gamification of our politics. It's that mm. we have a massive set of people, a chattering class, a media ecosystem, a partisan media ecosystem, uh, partisan political parties, where truth and honesty is not rewarded in our public square, in our dialogue, that the job of any number of these people is to interpret today's events in a way that favors their side of a debate. So you have people whose job it is, no matter what the facts are, are to explain to you why it is not Donald Trump's fault. Right. Right. And vice versa. Right. But but in this case, that's not really the, the, the relevant issue. Right. That we have uh, we've built a society where where too often we are unwilling to engage with reality. And because of our concern as as members of liberal institutions, and I don't mean that politically, I mean like classically democratically liberal institutions, our concern of wanting to have credibility with the quote other side in a debate, we find ourselves pulling punches and not telling the truth where the truth is very clear. It is extremely clear and was extremely clear at the time that Donald Trump was leading a nativist movement. And yet where was all this rendering of garments and gnashing of teeth about how, no, well, this is really about economics and we refuse to believe this could be about race and you people are just saying all the tr- – like, well, yeah, 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 actually, yes. And, and, and our history shows this, right, that there are clear historical parallels to other moments. And if you start willing to just interrogate this plainly and flatly, it's very obviously what is, obvious what is happening. But so often we're, we're so determined to grade on a curve that we're unwilling to actually, you know, acknowledge what the what our work shows us the answers are. You know, it's so true. The point you make about the incentives in media today. You know, I, I remember I had uh, Tucker Carlson on this podcast back in 2020, I think it was. And I asked him how he could support Trump after he Trump had pledged to ban all Muslims from the U.S. during the 2016 campaign. And Tucker said, Trump never did such a thing. And it was this sort of like bizarre moment. And it's actually, I've, I've spoken to other media 
supporters of Trump who have also just completely memory hold Trump pledging to ban all Muslims, which is perhaps the grimmest part of his 2016 campaign. And it's just something that they don't reckon with because I think it's not something that they could possibly excuse because obviously banning an entire religion from the United States is a, a horrific thing to even propose. You know, to ban all Muslims, he, he campaigned around with the families of people who had been killed by undocumented immigrants and brought them on stage. Yep. It's like, I mean, again, which is literally like Nazi rallies with like, these are the families of the people the Jews have killed, right? Like, right. it's like, like that, like, that level, like an explicit, like racialized, these people are the victims of those people who are storming our borders and taking our country. I mean, it was explicitly nativist and prejudicial, xenophobic. And we have just such a, and again, as you know, like our, the political incentives are for half of the people to just pretend as if that is not true. Not saying, I think this is terrible, but this is why it's excusable. Like, we can't even have a discussion about reality because they are so professionally compromised as to have to lie about what reality is or to, as you know, like to memory hole it, to forget it, to not right. pay attention to it, to pretend it didn't exist. And I think one of arguably the biggest factor that has fueled that, and this is something that you dig into the book, is the role that the rise of cable news and talk radio played mm. in fueling those fears and that anger. You know, you talk about news hosts like Lou Dobbs and talk radio hosts like Rush Limbaugh, who actively turned debates about immigration, which at certain points were pretty bipartisan and, and pretty nuanced and pretty sensible and turn them into these politically and racially charged outrages, almost like culture wars. Uh, tell us about the role that you, that you found that talk radio and cable news played in fueling that anger and in turning these issues into not sort of a simple policy debate, but into this basically a racist rallying cry. Of course. We have almost no discussion whatsoever of policy and immigration. Right. Right. It was interesting. There was just the Sean Hannity, or Gavin Newsom just went on Sean Hannity recently and they did that interview, and and it was interesting, you know. So Hannity's listing all his talking points off, and Newsom's engaging him. And he's just like, "Well, yeah, I agree with most of those things. I voted for most of those things. I've I got a plan for most of those things. Right? Let's do. Let's fix the problem. Right? Right. The the issue here is never. I mean, Ronald Reagan once called for an open border. Right? Like this is not like it, the. But what we've seen is this very guttural. I mean, to use like the the Gen Z language, like. So much of the policy around this is just vibes, right? It's like mm. it's like yeah. nah, it seems like there are a lot of people here seems who are like amnesty and stuff is changing and 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 again, right. what I would note is I think the historical uh, analogy here is to the 1920s, a century ago, and the rise of the Klan, right? We like to think of the Klan. We think of the Klan, the first Klan, and like the night marauders, right? But the more powerful Klan is the second Klan, the political party. Right, a clan that elects senators and governors, holds rallies of hundreds of thousands of people, is stronger and as strong in the North and the Midwest as anywhere else. Right, and yes, they're not big fans of black people and integration, but their key issues are are about what's being taught in schools, about Catholic and Jewish influence, about changing gender and sexuality norms, about and about immigration. They're big when the clan had its most political power in American history. It passed the 1924 Immigration Act. 
Johnson Reed Act, Johnson being a Klansman, right? That that the Klan at the height of its power, what did it do? It capped immigration and changed who could come in and out of the country, right? That there has been this. Th- these have been the key issues of the prejudicial white supremacist far right movements for as long as they've existed. And in moments like this, like I said, I think sometimes we get caught in this conversation of like, okay, but exactly what percentage of Trump people are racist and exactly what, whatever, right? But the point right. is, Silly. It, it raises yeah. to a movement that does exist of these people. And, and to answer that question you actually asked me, right, when we look back at the history, what we saw was the power of conservative talk radio uh, that really builds over the Clinton years. Uh, but then as we enter the Bush years and then later the Obama years, this deep frustration, again, at a time of an economic downturn of two foreign wars, of a post 9-11 moment where we have one, an understandable spike in patriotism, but also perhaps an understandable spike in Islamophobia and fear of different types of people. Um, you have all of that combining with the stark demographic change of the country and conservative media at its strength, talk radio, the rise of the internet, cable news, preaching a concern about amnesty, about, well, you lost your job and it went to someone who looks different than you. People like Lou Dobbs, who, I mean, we forget that CNN for years functionally allowed Lou Dobbs to host a hate rally on television every night at 8 p.m. In prime time. Yeah, in, in, in the primary slot for the primary news organization. At one point, he made a claim that immigrants were bringing leprosy into the United States of America. And when 60 Minutes interviewed him, Leslie Stahl asked him about it. And he said, well, if I said it, it's true. Right. This is the guy hosting the CNN primetime show. Right. It was completely made up, completely untrue. Right. Well, you look at it. These are a guy who I should note 10, 10 years later became too nuts for Fox News. Correct. Right. But and at a time when Fox News, know, yeah. was an early advisor to Donald Trump. Right. Right. Like it, it, so. So this is a but these are when you look at them, this is the playbook for xenophobic demonization. These are dirty people who are stealing our jobs. They're bringing disease. They don't respect our laws. They're sleeping with our women and are, t- and are, and are attacking us and our society and our culture. This is what was said about the Native Americans, about Black Americans, about Italian Americans, about Irish Americans, about Jewish Americans. About, right? It is exactly out of the playbook. No nuances, no complexities. Here we are. right? And so it should be unsurprising that what we are seeing is the same thing we've seen play out before. Acts of violence, acts of hostility towards those people. Replacement theory you mentioned earlier, that's a big part of this book. And I think it came into a lot of Americans' vocabulary when Tucker Carlson, formerly uh, on Fox News, was the most watched host on all of cable, and he started endorsing it on his show. It's got a long history before him. Were you, were you able to, to delve into that history and, yeah. and, and really see where that came from in this book? Sure. I mean, look, I think that there's a... This theory and this conversation is something that has been around indefinitely, right? It became something that because Tucker Carlson and some others began explicitly using and citing, it was something that uh, and entered our kind of political nomenclature. But this has been at the core and one of the core ideologies of white supremacist belief basically indefinitely, right? This is like a core right. ideology of the Klan, of the Nazis, 
of right this idea first and foremost that there is a biological white race in the first place and i think it's important right. to know it's important to state i've been trying to say this right when we talk about race we're talking about a social construct race is not real right like there's no biological race and and so right. white supremacist ideology is fundamentally based and grounded in the idea that, that that races exist in the first place there actually are white people right not people who are socialized as white who benefit from like actually there is and i think that that is a i think that that is uh part of it and then this idea that there is some type of threat being presented to a white race and that, that this white race has to be avenged and it has to be defended and so we see this we see this in uh, the language and the rhetoric of you, you know, of the Mount Rushmore of the of the great racist in not just American history but international history, uh, we see this showing up in white supremacist literature, whether it be in the novel The Camp of the Saints or the novel The Turner Diaries. Right, that this idea we see this across different white supremacist movements, whether that's the Klan, whether that's the neo Nazis, the militias, the Christian identitarianisms and the now Christian nationalist, however you want to call it, the skinheads, right? This idea that there is some type of purity of bloodline that has to be defended. And, and so again, what we see very often in more mainstream conservative media is a just asking questions posture. Well, I'm just raising this and I'm just asking this and I'm just, but what ends up happening is that these are the, you know, we used to use the word gateway drug for like weed, even though that was never true there, right? It's that what white supremacists know is that if you get a bunch of disaffected white people Googling things like immigrants in crime, black people in crime, they're very going to very quickly going to land themselves in dark places of the internet that have been designed to proselytize to them. We, we forget mm. this, but Dylan Roof, who commits the massacre in Charleston, in Charleston, he gets there, he ends up down this path by Google searching black on white crime following media coverage of Trayvon Martin, right? right? And finds himself, and before long, he's writing a manifesto about the, quote, Jewish problem and shooting up a black church, right? That what we know is that there are certain types of language and rhetoric that have proven themselves over history to mobilize people towards violence. And that just requires of us a different level of responsibility. Now, looking forward towards 2024, uh, what worries you the most about a Trump campaign, even a Trump presidency, in terms of sparking further white lash than, than what we've already seen with the initial Trump administration and, and Barack Obama before him? I think it can be really hard sometimes even to remember the anxiety and ugliness of 2016. Um. The out, riots breaking out, at Trump rallies, attacks that are happening. I'm thinking of a guy in Boston who gets killed uh, by these guys, immigrant and homeless man in Boston gets killed by these Trump supporters and some others. It that I, I think that we forget the environment that can be created when omnipresent in our public square is someone who is openly, with no regard for facts or nuance, openly demagoguing and demonizing certain types of people. And what I fear is that right now it is not even just him, but rather it also includes other uh, other candidates, right? That right. the Republican Party, 
for so long watered this animus among its base that now there's a real theory that it's impossible or, or extremely unlikely that you can make it through a Republican primary without attracting those people. And so what we, we're seeing is other candidates who are embracing the Trump playbook, demonizing immigrants or refugees. I guess I think I referenced earlier, DeSantis has declared he's going to get rid of birthright citizenship, even though he can't even do that. Right. But what you also see are candidates, you know, people who would frame themselves or position themselves as the more quote unquote reasonable or more tethered to reality, the Nikki Haley's who are taking gratuitous shots at transgender people and, and perpetuating lies about, uh, you know, about the medical statistics, right? That that is a dehumanization and that dehumanization, those lies run a real risk, right? That the people who are, who we give public platform to have to be responsible with those platforms, or I would suggest we should remove those platforms. And so what I worry about in a cycle like this is that what ultimately ends up happening is that we end up placing a lot of people's prejudices on television screens, on the radio airwaves, uh, have those things flow unchecked. And what happens when there's something that you maybe feel shame about or something you believe, a prejudice you hold, when it's reflected back to you in public, it provides you a permission structure to act on it. Now, speaking of those platform, CNN had a town hall with Trump recently, and the network basically got so destroyed for how they handled it that their CEO ended up getting fired. There were a few other missteps that he got fired for, of course. But what what did you make of the town hall? And do you think that media is doing a, a decent job of covering our Trump right now? Or do you think they're repeating the same mistakes as 2016? I mean, I think it was an unmitigated disaster um, and like journalistically bankrupt. I, I think that what was as concerning was not just the execution, but the thoughtlessness in the run-up to it. In the run-up to it, you had the declaration from, I want to say it was the political director, who said, we are going to cover Trump just like we would cover any other candidate. Right. Would you cover Louis Farrakhan just like any other candidate? He could declare tomorrow. Would you hand him a microphone and let him spend 90 minutes talking about Jews and the white devils? I mean, conversely, like is, is CNN going to do a town hall with RFK Jr.? Correct. Right. The framing was we're going to ask tough questions. We're going to I remember this. I think it was Oliver Darcy's newsletter the day before where you could already see. I mean, he, there was a big blow up about how, um, you know, he had come at licked a little bit the day after he had to. I mean, he's tethered to reality. He had to be honest about what happened. But even the day before, he's going, well, one thing's for sure. Trump will be asked tough question. What is this fetishization with tough questions? Who is served by looking at conspiracy theorists in the eye and asking them to repeat their conspiracy theory? Right? In 2023, no one needs to ask Donald Trump about January 6th. He's on the record. We're not revealing anything. They're not showing anything new. Right. right? And well, do you think there's no value in saying, having a Trump town hall, having a lot of his supporters watching it, asking him about January 6th, and then fact-checking him on it, having an anchor tell him, no, that's not true. This is the truth. There is, there's a few, I think there's a hierarchy of things. First and foremost, I don't think you put people who are pathological liars and who routinely dehumanize other humans, I just do not think you put them on live television, full stop, period, right? And so I right. would never 
I would never find myself in this format because I would never agree to place such a person on live television for the reasons being that with the microphone, what they might do is the exact things that, that he did, right? Which are actually harmful, right? It is not a good thing to broadcast to millions of people him attacking a black Capitol Police officer as a thug. That is harmful. Right. You should not broadcast it, right? So but so I think that so that's one. Two, I think what we have to be honest about, and I think we have a hard time in the political media being honest about this, voter town halls are not actually about voters, they're media spectacles and events. Right? First of all, New Hampshire is like a year and a half from voting. Why are we doing a voter town hall in New Hampshire? Donald Trump could be in federal prison by the time they vote. Right? What is the function of doing a quote voter town hall? more than a calendar year before the election right. makes no sense right yeah. the um like clearly not about the voters right like it's about, no, it's about having a news event ad. that brings in ratings correct All right and so third what i would note is that i've never someone who said you don't interview donald trump i i, I would point out i think brett Baer did a pretty good job just like two days ago now what was mm-hmm. different about that Frankly, I think Sean Hannity even did a better job when he did it not that long ago, right? And, and so again, what I would note is that you you have to you cannot cede as an interviewer, as a journalist, you not cede your platform to the person who you are covering. You control what is going on. You control. You are the you are the tube through which the viewer or the reader interacts with the person being covered. Right? I don't hand you the microphone. I don't hand you the front page of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and let you draw whatever you want on it. And what CNN did is they handed their platform to someone who is a proven liar, someone who has who fermented an attack on our democracy. And they said, here, take the microphone, walk around. for." And I think that that's the issue. So it's not that there's no way you could interview him. It's not that there's no way. But I think the bigger question is, I've said this a few times, what is the point, the stated point of doing this, right? And I think that is where we have to unweave the actual real point, which is to make money for CNN and get ratings versus like the stated point. Because if the stated point is we want to inform the voters of the United States of America about the leading candidate for president of the United States, and we have 90 minutes in prime time to do it, was that the best use of 90 minutes in prime time for CNN if their goal was to inform voters about Donald Trump and his movement? I would suggest it absolutely was not. You could have done anything. You could have brought experts in. You could have made a mini documentary. You could have interviewed all these people around him. You could have brought in historians. You could have, right? What, if, if the goal is to inform, did this succeed? And I just think objectively, by any measure, it did not. I know nothing about Donald Trump or his movement than I did before watching the town hall. I knew nothing about him as a human, him as a politician, him as a leader. I know nothing about the Republican electorate I didn't know already. I know nothing even about his political stances I didn't know already, which in his case, particularly futile because he's just making stuff up, right? So this idea like, oh, well, we got, we pinned him down on Russia. Donald Trump's just making stuff up. His answer will be different tomorrow. There's no value in getting him to riff on the Ukrainian headline of the day today. Like, he's not the, like, and so again, I think that we have to take our job to inform and enlighten more seriously. And if an old convention, be it a town hall, 
be it a live interview, be it people are going to be mad at me for that, be it a debate, right? If the old convention does not serve the journalistic purpose, then we just shouldn't do it. Mm. And we should, the very smart people should figure out a way to serve the journalistic convention. Like we should do our jobs, you know? The last time you came on this podcast, we spoke at length about the changes happening to newsrooms, in particular, the ways that they were reconsidering, you know, what constitutes opinion and, and what constitutes news, and also how they covered the issues of race. Do you think that in the last couple of years, we've made progress, at least when you look back at, you know, the Washington Post, where you used to work, the New York Times, there have been a lot of debates internally about uh, this kind of stuff. Do you think we've made progress in the last two years? Look, I think that we've seen a lot of reactionary backlash. I think that the a lot of the politics of the people who run newsrooms and who own newsrooms have been this sense of that the woke reckoning went too far, right? And now there's this playback to the middle. I think it's a big part of what we saw with CNN. Trump's over now, so now can we play back to like the moderates or the Republican, right? Let's pretend that none of this happened. Let's stop talking about all this race stuff. Let's stop doing all this... Um, and so, no, I don't. I don't think we've seen. You know, I, I think I don't think we've seen massive shift and massive change. I think there's been some change and there's been significant change. I think there've been people who have been given jobs and opportunities that they may not, maybe would not have been. I think there have been some newsrooms and some places that have really endeavored to do uh, smart uh, analysis of what's going on within their own workplaces. But I think the reality is there has been just as much backlash within the industry as there's been anything else. We've seen, you know, clearly, uh, we, we see where the big money is being spent. And we see, again, what CNN has tried to do, which has been to more or less repudiate any suggestion that uh, <laughs> that, that their journalists would be free to, to tell hard truths on the air, uh, the, um, and that they were going to pivot and, and chase Republicans, no matter how untethered to reality those Republicans were. You know, Chris Licht famously said that he would not host people on his air who didn't believe that the uh, that the rain exists. And then he held a town hall with the leader of the rain doesn't exist party, and then kicked it to a kicked it to a panel discussion where Byron Daniels, an elected member of the rain does not exist party, lectured CNN journalists about what had happened. Right? Uh, we see things like the Messenger, right, that are built on the fiction that like the media has become too woke or too whatever, and they're going to get back to quote unquote unbiased news, which means like right wing, white conservative tabloid sensibility, right? That unbiased news is the news that carries their bias. <laughs> Not, <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that that, and so I think it's unfortunate, but I think that throughout all of it, I think we've seen important conversations across our industry about, um, about who we serve and what our role is in this moment. Um, I think we still have an ongoing conversation of in a liberal democracy, what role do the liberal institutions play in defending that liberal democracy itself? Um, and I think we've also seen a lot of great work done by a lot of great people. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm like very rarely a good like, but what's the hope person? But what I will say is that, um, but what I will say is that I think the critique, I think criticism, and I think that the reason journalism is important and journalism that's unsparing about telling the truth is that once we know the truth and once we have the truth, we're able and we're capable of addressing it, right? One of the reasons I think it's important for us to address this cultural white lash we've seen is so that we can do something about it. And putting our head in the sand and pretending it doesn't exist doesn't actually make it go away. Mm.
The book is American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Wes Lowry, thanks so much for coming on the show again. I really appreciate it. Of course, man, anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Wes Lowry on Mediaite.com.